So go ahead and ask your question again. So I'm interested in that last step of Anapanasati, step 16, uh, letting go. Um, I'd never really approached it that much in practice, uh, <laughs> kind of explicitly. And then in the last little, or, or kind of specifically, then the last few weeks I've been... I you bet. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, I don't know. The, at the end of the sits, it's like when I'm when I'm kind of deliberately working with that with that step. There's like this quality of just like all experience is just like arising, and you are just in that moment as it as you are perceiving it kind of arise. You are just like giving it back you are you are letting it go continuously and it's like this it feels like this very it feels like a significant it feels it feels significant <laughs> um that okay that, that feeling of just kind of in the moment letting it go and it, it kind of takes on a kind of life of its own and an energy of its own and it feels really or maybe a never mind it's a death of its own yes yeah 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 very yeah because it's dying this moment is dying only yes. for the next one to come by generation after like, generation of moments yeah <laughs> it feels like opening up to that allowing that and not not doing the clinging that kind of gets in the way of that natural process occurring or aligning aligning your mind with that reality a bit okay more closely all right um let us start with um the word that you used last you use that word okay and it is true that it is the last word of the Anapanasati Sutta, but in fact, it's part of the practice from the very first time you sit down. Mm. It is, and that it is worth talking about because normally I kind of skip over it, but that it does have a lot of value. That in fact, there are several words in Pali that are, that we're talking about, and I would like to introduce to you the one that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa likes so much, mm -hmm. and that Pali word is Atamayata. You've heard me use that word before. Atamayata then has more to it than. Um, uh, what we would call the word relinquishment. Mm -hmm. an, ex uh, an example of relinquishment, there's many types of relinquishments. And that one kind of the relinquishment is, is that when you sell a house, one of the things is the definite you sold it or it's gone now, is that you sign it. Now that's generally done in celebration. We're talking about a different kind of uh, relinquishment. Mm. And so, in fact, the word relinquishment doesn't quite fit, and neither does letting go. So, uh, by the way, I hear an echo. Can you? Uh, my, my, should I switch my mic on and off? Might that help? Yeah, if you turn your mic off for a minute, then, then it will... Uh, there you go. All right. So... The word atamayata is much more appropriate for the Westerner to understand really what we're talking about here. Uh, but in fact, uh, going back to the sale of land, or let us use an easier example, the sale of a car. When you sell a car, you relinquish it in stages. Don't do it all at one time. Everything relinquishment kind of stuff is always done in stages. Uh, and so the first one would be the idea that I've got to sell it. Then maybe you might actually take some action to put out some advertisements, and that's a further relinquishment. Now you're kind of being committed a little bit. And then somebody comes and wants to look at it. Now you're back into the state of joy, 
but you're willing to show it off and whatnot. But when he actually makes you an offer, that's another kind of relinquishment. But then that car drives off. He's got it. You've relinquished it now. No, you haven't. Still comes back to mind. And generally it comes back to mind kind of with the, uh, the statement that the Buddha used is, Oh me, I once had it and now it is lost. In other words, when we sold it, we really didn't quite relinquish it. And so we still cling to it in a way. All right, so this atamayata, let's investigate that. The word tam means to do, and it has the same weight or the same force as taking a job, work, or karma, or karma, an action, a direct deliberate action is Tom. Then, in fact, in Thailand, uh, when we talk about words like salary and whatnot, that the word for that in Thai is Tom Nan, the money from work, work money. Okay, so our, our Tom. So this is what we mean by Tom. And Atom is the exact opposite, which means don't. Don't do it. Don't work at it. Don't have that job. All right. And what is that? Then the object of that is Maya. Maya is often translated as the world with very good. We're not talking about the planet Earth. We're talking about human civilization or we're still human culture. Civilization is something we wish we had and all we've got is a shirt, T-shirt that says culture. <laughs> Nothing civil about our culture, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, um, this word atamayata coming to maya, which comes to world. It's not the planet Earth. Planet Earth is just fine, thank you very much. You don't need no help, don't need no humans. It's fine to go, it's good, it's got its own show going, and, and it knows how to spin around and revolve and do all of that kind of stuff, and it don't need no help from Westerners or humans. But our culture is different than that. Why would we say it's different? It's because the culture itself is dangerous. And that is the way of the world. Another way of using the word Myra is not just um, uh, world, but also the devil. Or really dangerous stuff. And then another way of using it, actually the way that the Buddha was using it, is mental qualities. Our own devilish kinds of thoughts or our own unwholesome uh, thinking, etc., like that. But that makes it really broad. All unwholesome thought would then be considered Maya. Is Mara uh, and Maya, are they etymologic? Mara is the Sanskrit and Maya is the uh, Pali, and I literally interchange the two often. Just like karma and kama and dharma and dhamma. Uh, Sanskrit just loves that letter R. <laughs> they love them some R's. Is Maya, but is it is Maya the same as in like the Vedantic idea of Maya? Because that's the idea of illusion, like the world as illusion. Precisely so. Yeah. Precisely so. That was the next definition on the list. Was that of illusion or the uh, let us say not just illusion but enticingly mm. illusion or more specifically in that regard it's a bait and switch mm -hmm. it's enticing but you are not going to get what you settled for and when we recognize that that encompasses all of the stuff including the attachment to the car that we've left behind or that was sold or whatever like that that now the, the the attachment is to the Mara. And so Atamaya, by the word ta, is actually an expletive. It's just it's kind of a word. We have those kind of words in English, but we haven't got them uh, uh, as formalized or down to a very but small group. But you could say, like, well, I told you so, duh. 
And so our word the is the word in Pali is ta. So atamaya ta is, is the way that it is to be seen uh, uh, or as emphasis, which means don't have anything to do with it. Now, this is an active kind of thing because the delusional thoughts and, and systems of, of mentality that we have will sneak up on us. They bait us with the, with the illusion that this is a good thought to have and we wind up being dissatisfied with it. Mm-hmm. So we pull that bait and switch on our own mind. All right, we do. Okay, so when we say atamayata, that means I'm not going to have anything to do with that bait and switch or that lie that I tell myself or any of that kind of stuff. Clinging to things that have long gone. The car's been sold. It's gone. Any thoughts I have of that car is painful. Even if I remember it in the beginning, it's delicious. And I think about it. But then when I think about uh, that I loved that car and it was a delicious feeling thinking about it, that delicious feeling of liking will turn into longing and wanting in a hair's breadth. And rabbits breathe fast. (laughs) Um, So... Uh, that is the way that we should start looking at this kind of stuff that it, that when I'm thinking about that old object and it's, it's delicious to think about the past, but it, it trips us up very quickly. It will turn it into longing. Oh, I had it. I liked it. I sold it, but I wish I had it back again now because I remember that I actually liked it. Hmm. Unless we're being very, like, mindful at the point of contact with that memory, right? Exactly. And we can hold that memory without the kind of clinging, and we can let that go of that memory without the, the clinging. And Precisely so. Now, um, one of my really good friends, close friend in, uh, he actually went with us to, uh, to Thailand from the U.S., uh, and stayed in Thailand for quite a, a while. His name was David. And that David had a really silly idea, but it precisely wraps up what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that is, he said that you could pick a booger out of the nose. <laughs> and you got that great big booger on your finger, but you can't just flick it off. You got to really flick it off. It was sticking to the nose, and now it's sticking to your finger. Okay, that's the way that Maya operates. It's really, really sticky. Mm. So merely thinking that you've got it in your hand and you let it go and gravity alone will take it. Sorry, (laughs) you still got a handful of it. You got to really go and wash and clean your hands or clean your mind. It's an active state. This Atamayata is work to be done, right effort. And guess what? Every time the mind wanders away from the breath, or every time you remember to come back to the breath, we have to actively do this. Mm-hmm. We have to throw out of the mind, actively throw it out. People say, how do you do that? Well, by thinking about throwing it out is a completely different thought than just being stuck in it. Oh, I love that car. No, that's dangerous. Throw that thought about that car out. Is a different thought than thought of how lovely the car is and I wish I had it. So this is the way that we pretend we be, it's built right into Anapanasati. All of these 16 steps of Anapanasati go just like this. And they happen all with that uh, issue of sati. To wake up, to look at what you're doing. When you see what you're doing is unwholesome, you relinquish it. You throw it out. Okay, so yeah. when we say, that's why I actually use the word throwing out. And I should say that and tell the students that I'm actually talking about Anapanasati, step number 16, is to throw that stuff out, actively throw it out. And we do it with every moment that the mind is unwholesome. 
Mm. And pretty soon we don't have so much to throw out anymore because they're, um, how to say it, they're shy to come sneaking back in. That the thought of that car will just be a blip on the screen and we don't, we don't grasp hold of it and remember it and fondle it and say, oh, I love that car. I wish I had it back again. Mm-hmm. We don't do any of that stuff. We just, out it goes. <laughs> so this is the word atamayata. And it, uh, that's not actually the word that's in uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. I remember looking it up. Is this the word that Achan Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uses right out of the Anapanasati Sutta? No, but he chooses this word because it's more powerful than the word that is actually in there. Because it's actually, it sounds like just letting it go this way, mm-hmm. to where in fact that don't let go of it because it's sticking to the hand. I suppose what I'm describing, what I described at the beginning, they get. I I hear what you're saying, and like so often, one so often either in practice or in life, that letting go has to be. This involves a lot of effort and involves uh, a lot. I wouldn't say. I would say right effort. Right. (laughs) Exactly the right amount of effort. but then what I was describing at the, which is this state, which sometimes comes and it's normal and it's towards the end of the set. It is like this quite effortless place of like letting, it feels like this quite effortless letting go. And like, you're able, like each moment. That's it, after you let it go. When you do let it go, it's not sticking and clinging and we're lightweight. The mind becomes yeah. lightweight, free. It can fly. Yeah. Because it's got no burdens. As so long as that sticky Myra is still in the mind, then it's weighting us down. So, yes, you're right. The letting go is like the last uh, uh, tether, the last rope that's cut from the air balloon. Mm. And then it just naturally lifts off into the air because it's got no more tethers. Yeah. A metaphor. That- came to my mind as well as like born again like there was a, a feeling I was sitting before I phoned you and it was like at the end of the sit was just like every moment just felt like this like brand newness like this like and it felt like it felt like uh like each moment being born again which is a bit like what you said at the beginning about like you can think of it as born again or you can think of it as dying all the time and it's like the same mm-hmm. the same thing well uh, let's go back to that uh, air balloon mm-hmm. as the example. That cutting that last tether, or cutting the tethers, is work. Mm. That in fact, in all the movies, when they do it in the old days, they use an axe <laughs> to cut that rope. <laughs> okay, that's the kind of action that it takes to let go of the tethers. But then, when the last tether is cut, we start to ascend which means that now we're in a vista that's ever-changing. Mm. As we rise above it all, we begin to see the things that were close are no longer close, but they're still distinct while our vista is growing and growing. So this is, in fact, one's right noble view is almost like uh, in, physical, in physical reality is an aerial view. Mm. Because we've cut loose of everything that's kept us tied to the ground, mm. mentally. Yes, it's marvelous. <laughs> that's marvelous. We think, in fact, it is marvelous to hang on to that, to be tethered. But mm. once we let go, that's when the real ascension or the real joy can come. By letting go, and this happens just time after time after time. It's something that is not a goal to be reached. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a switch to be thrown, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the but the switch is a rusty old switch, and it tends to fall back <laughs> down. To, or one of these breakers, you've got to take and throw that breaker on to get that juice flowing. But if you take your hand off the switch, it'll fall back off. <laughs> So that's the way that we practice. 
as, as the, the letting go is something that happens every piece of sattik. That's one of the things that uh, uh, I, uh, when the Buddha, we've said many times, aha, I see you, Mara. So then the Atamaya or Mara is, and out you go. Not having anything to do with you. you you're exhausted. You're gone. No one believes or no one here believes in your delusions anymore. Mm. That thinking about an old motorcycle or an old car I used to have finally is dangerous, and I know that now. Mm. So I'm not going to give that kind of stuff any, any stick at all. That's one of the reasons why we talk about so much of getting out of the past. Because that's literally what we meet most need to be relinquished or to let go of. Atom Maya or Atom Past. Hmm. And it's very related to anatta and self-view, isn't it? Because we, the past is what reinforces a self-view because we create a kind of narrative about yeah, us. Yeah, whose past is it? Based on a very selective um, choice of memories from the past. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in that regard, doubly so, I'll ask again, whose memory is it? Whose past is it? Mm. Now, there is the kind of past that leaves really solid evidence. Buildings burning down, videotapes, erosions, uh, political office changes, and things like that. Some of the past is is fairly easy enough to see, but remember, one's own individual memory past has very few actual anchors. And the further back in time we go, the less likely we're going to have any anchors at all, mm-hmm. which means that our memories <clears throat> do not have some. Doesn't have a what? Doesn't have a checksum. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean by a checksum? No. Okay. Uh, the first piece of um, one of the things when we were first started using computers was the technology that we had was unreliable and we needed to know if this file is good. And so one of the basic things on your computer is, is that file will have some verification stuff in it. And the very first one that we've used in computers was a checksum which means that you take every byte or every word or whatever, you know, like every character, and you add them all together mm-hmm. and throw away all of the um, uh, higher digits and keep only one word that is a verification for this file. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a small file, that's accurate. But if you've got hundreds of millions of characters in it, then that's not a very good verification, but it's a start. Or maybe you do a whole work and get 32 bits of verification. So it's a checksum. And in fact, in the old days in original, the data was so dangerous that we had to put a checksum on every individual character. How we did that was by taking an 8-bit character and adding a ninth bit to it, a checksum bit. You add all of those other characters up, up, and then you put this one on to make sure that it all went back to zero. So if you add all the digits up and it comes up to one, you put another one in it and it's all back to zero. That's a that's an even checksum. Or you can do it odd if you want to, but uh, it depends upon the standard. So this is a checksum. Our memories have no checksums. No, but the the past, you know, like go, go it, with conditionality, right? If this arises, that arises. The past is not it didn't not happen <laughs> pardon it didn't not happen it's yes that's true something other one or the other happened all right we know that that's possible and this moment How, will arise as this moment arises unless that moment was as it was and it, mm-hmm. and it that web of past wasn't as so there there is a shared constructional reality that we all share together mm. like i said building streets uh statuary books but all even, of that kind of stuff that's long lasting 
our bodies and our minds though are still part of that even though it's like much subtler and we would think so that in fact that's part of the delusional system that we have is is that our memories are as good as evidence Mm, I'm not necessarily suggesting it's our memories that are the, the 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 best verification of of that past, but that you know, for example, if I if the, if a feeling arises, if so, it is based on the past, it's not right, but it's based upon a constructed past done by an infant. Mm. You're a full of wonder and fury. Mm. Okay. That's the problem is, is that the, the past that is constructed in, in a shared reality, we can get verification for that. But oftentimes that doesn't happen either. Mm. That in people, in fact, can know the facts and ignore them outright. One of the things that's going on right now, I'll go ahead and tell you the story that I've sold it several times recently. And that is, there's the story of the snake and the lady who took in the snake. This is a story told by Donald Trump because he's actually talking about himself. And everybody knows it. So the woman is walking down the road and she sees a snake that's in poor condition, ill health. She has pity on the snake. She picks it up, carries it home, and after several days, it nurses, she nurses it back to health, and it bites her, poisonous snake. And in her death throes, she says, but why did you bite me? And the snake replied, you knew I was a snake when you took me in. Ah, that is very telling. People do know collectively, for instance, that Donald Trump is a snake. He's a crook. He's a, a charlatan. He's a thief. And they vote for him anyway. Mm -hmm. All right. If they really knew that he was a crook, and they do, they know at least, you know, but they expect that that danger is not going to happen to them because they're good to Donald Trump. They voted for him. He'll take care of them. They're looking for greedy. They're, they're being greedy and they want something. So this is the whole idea then about even those facts. Our human mind will not necessarily deal with them correctly. Our whole lives are spent basically denying the facts until we can't deny it anymore. Mm. Okay. If you, uh, if you grew up as a child with a condition, one of the things that happens to that child with that condition is that he hates that condition and everybody else who has it. Mm. So every fat child who grows up fat hates fat people. That's just how it is, right? Because he does not like something, and so he propagates it all around. As a, um, This is because of the way that we generalize. We overgeneralize. We group things together that are actually not groupable. Mm. An example of that is when we group together mentally some concept like the United States government. There's no such thing as a United States government. You don't believe me, look at the news at any day and they'll talk about all the conflict and all the discussion and nobody agrees on what is the United States government. Mm. They've got yeah. some buildings. Yeah, reality is a lot more complex than our conceptual overlay allows for. And actually our conceptual overlay often not only doesn't capture reality, but actively distorts it, confuses it, creates completely unfounded connections and assumptions and... Okay, and let us say it this way. Everyone then does that in kind of a unique way. Mm. So that with 20 million people, they'll all have 20 million different viewpoints of the Republican Party mm. and 20 million different views of the federal government, etc., like that. And so when we look at it from that perspective, we recognize that every individual looks at the world in a worldview that's absolutely unique. And no one other person in the world has a unique view of the world that that person has. 
error of the fact that it's constantly changing and eroding anyway. Mm. That shows how much complexity there is to it. And that uniqueness is one of the contributing factors to the delusion that there's a self mm. because I'm, I'm unique. Mm. No, it's not you that's unique. <laughs> you are exactly like everybody else, a delusional uh, manifestation of a set of aggregates. Mm. But if you take any one of the five aggregates, the body, the feeling, your consciousness, your memory systems, especially the memory systems and the way that you perceive things with that memory system combined with consciousness is your own view of the world. That's the Salayatana. Mm. And that in that view, there is no self. There's no self in any one of those aggregates. But the self does arise when the feelings associated with it do arise, that the feelings are, in fact, part of the creation of the self. I like it. Who likes it? I like it. Mm. Especially when the feelings start then to interact with the Sankara, right? And they start to activate those kind of memory webs. And it's like, I like it now, I liked it then. The reason why I like it is this. It's based on this experience, this memory, this hope, this dream. And then it's a real. We do that with many things, including food. Mm. An example of that was my mom, when I was three years old, left on the train in Oklahoma to go visit her mom in North Carolina. Never mind the fact that the train routes were so bad in the 1950s, she actually had to go to Chicago to do that. Mm -hmm. But after we left the train station, my dad got some French fries for me as a you know comfort food. And these were the most delicious French fries I've ever had. In fact, it was kind of new. Okay, so that's what labeled, that's what registered then with the French fries. Since that time, I've had to understand that when I'm eating French fries, I'm not eating those French fries that I remember. I'm eating these French fries. And these French fries may be old. They may be hard. They may be too salty. They may be too oily. But I've got to eat either, either eat these French fries as they are or not and stop putting these things in my mouth thinking about the old French fries and how good they used to taste when I was... A, a little kid mm. and yet these like these these <clears throat> these memories that you have and this these are not these are not like inherently bad things right it goes back to that like it's not necessarily bad it's the way the human mind is constructed and it's not infallible yeah if god made humans he screwed us up <laughs> Because he could have done a much better job. I've got a whole list of things he could improve. <laughs> mindfulness at the point of contact things. You could, you could be eating these French fries now, or seeing these French fries now, and the memory of these past French fries could occur, and you could mindfully and knowingly feel that feeling of what it was like to be six years old and taste those French fries and mindfully and knowingly be as you are now with these french fries in front of you and this can be a, a rich mindful web of interconnection which is unique to you because no one else is in your situation at that exact moment in time connecting those disparate moments in in existence right and that is wonderful it's kind of wonderful yeah. that can exactly but there's a little bit more to it than that that we actually have to put in there too and that is is that when i was three years old that was comfort food they were extraordinary delicious and that was the end of it now these french fries are not only too oily too salty cold and hard but they're dangerous for the metabolism of this body mm. Therefore, I should not eat these French fries now that are bad for me because I thought that all French fries are wonderful because I've had wonderful French fries. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the whole idea then of being able to see the danger. 
Yeah. But in fact, the normal, I'm, I'm using French fries now, but normally the, the, the one that I use is donuts. When we think of donuts, they're delicious. Oh, they're delightful. And it, uh, But when someone goes on a diet, one of the things that will help um, increase the possibility that that diet's going to be useful and, and work for him is when he is encountering that donut. He has danger in it, not just the delight. If he doesn't see the danger, he says, oh, well, I'll put away later. No, he needs to throw it out. He needs to say, this is Maya. This is dangerous. This donut is not what I want. You can see the donut itself, a physical donut, has exactly this bait and switch. It's got that delightfulness in the beginning, and the payment is later. The danger is later. And in the Dhamma, that's what the first noble truth is all about, is let's start looking at the dangers in this stuff. Let's start recognizing that this stuff is dangerous and um, that only then can we find an escape from it. This is actually the teaching that's quite famous. In the, it's in the Dhammapada and it's in the Majjhima and several places. And that is that ordinary people can only see the delight. But the Dhamma dude can see both the delight and the danger or the drawbacks. And by doing so, he can plot his escape. Basically, that's that Atam Mayata again, is that we see the danger. We begin to see this donut is Maya. This is dangerous. Those old cold hard french fries I've got in my hand. <laughs> I know they're oily because I got oil all over my hand. These are dangerous. Not to be eaten. Well, the real issue is not about food. I'm just using food as an example. The real issue is what we do inside the mind and do dwelling on the past, mm. pining over stuff that we've lost that we don't have anymore is a, is a clear example of that. Mm-hmm. Or wanting something we don't have, thinking that, oh, if I only had that, then everything would be great. Mm-hmm. And we get that thing, and now we've got an additional uh, uh, item to care for. Mm. Something that's come up with me a little bit in the last few weeks is, um, which I've been trying to spot and throw out as it comes, because I see that when I think in this way, I I act much less skillfully, is uh, seeing... <sighs> getting in touch with the truth that like other people are changing processes rather than fixed things. So it's something we've spoken about before, but like, so my son, Sydney now he's four, you know, when, when boys are like between the ages of three and five, they get these sudden like testosterone surges and just so much anger. And it's like, so it's just, you know, what it's like when you're four and a half. Uh, I do, and I know exactly how to act to me when I do that, and that is with great humor and hilarity. Yeah. Ha-ha, you're having a tantrum, da-da-da-da. <laughs> or, or, or just space, like space around it rather than reacting to the anger. So actually, if you see the anger wisely, you're just like, this is a passing thing, this is not who you are, this is just something which is arising, Let's like give it some space. Let's not make a big deal about it. Let's like find the right time. What do you mean give it space? Give it space as in like, so I've, I feel like some of the tendency when that anger arises to kind of like almost like put it in a corner and demand that it change. <laughs> Whereas actually, if you just kind of like almost like ignore it a tiny bit, just like almost as kind of like, okay, you're doing that thing. It's going to, It'll All right. And when the moment's right, then you come in with the hilarity, right? Like when, when well, that. The, 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 the right moment is as soon as you remember. <laughs> you know, I feel like there's a certain type of the kind of anger of a four year old, which if it meets a laughter, just interests anger more. I feel like the, the inviting him out of it with humor. You need to time that invitation really well, because otherwise 
it's almost like more i don't know but anyway yeah when they're in the rebellious mood um but the point is is that if they recognize that that's all there because it's going to take several times and he's going to get into it but when he recognizes when he does that that it sparks hilarity from you yeah and nurturing this is uh back to um you see going back to the way that it happened with you you're a testosterone and you're a four-year-old and you're uh and what did mom do What did mom, what did dad do when you were doing that? Do you remember? I think probably couldn't really, I think I probably did all of that alone. I don't think I really did that very much in front of them. Uh-huh. That came but out. in other ways and in other cases, they chose to be critical of you. Yeah. Which is normally the way that we would deal with a four-year-old having a tantrum. Yeah. And and that would come right out of both our instincts and our culture, mm. not our wisdom. Mm. With wisdom, we can come to that child with compassion, with mudita, mm. with with joy, and that compassion uh, in Eric Burns' language would be nurturing mm. rather than critical parent. Mm. But I think also going back to the wisdom thing, for me, it really helps to like understand that what's arising in that moment is not some fixed entity called my son who's bit, who who is angry. It is like this actually like really mm-hmm. fluid process that is that and that there's conditions for all of this, and that that you have to. <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, that it's not him that's doing it. It's just the process that all children go through. Yeah, and I remember his sister, the same thing, when she was, was, when she was a little bit younger, when she was like three, three and a half to four and a half, actually, Mm -hmm. the tantrums could be very, like, intense. All right. Well, you see, on it. Yeah. When, When the adults in the room actually are adults rather than parents, and we, as adults, can see the, this is what children go through. This is part of the enculturalization of the nature. And the nature is, is what we're, we're wild animals. Mm. We are beasts of the fields and forest. And the reason why humans are the ones who have built civilization is because nobody else was up to it. <laughs> but we haven't done a very good job because we're still, when we're born, is a wild animal that's born mm-hmm. and that they have to be enculturated and that enculturation is not very good mm-hmm. especially when that enculturation is done critically mm-hmm. and so uh the enculturation that almost all kids have comes from the the parent in the room who says this is my kid misbehaving mm-hmm. Okay, the selfishness is there. The adult in the room will, will say, hey, kids do this. This mm. is what kids do. Mm. And there's no selfishness mm. in it. Yeah, the selfishness is on two two elements. It's the my kid element, and it's also the seeing the child as a fixed uh, entity. As a fixed entity and a self itself, right. Yeah. Not only is he a self, but he's my kid. He's exactly. So, two two delusional systems going on with every parent. Mm. They treat the kid and teach the kid to be a self and to be selfish, because the kid's got to be a self in order for the parent to own him as a, as their kid. And this is how this um, delusional system is taught to us. And it started way back when, I don't know. But the Buddha is pointing out that this this is not really hard to get over. Once you understand that a a child is going through what all children go through, and it's not an individual child. Mm. It's just what children do. That way we can act adults. We can be nurturing. The critical parent is the one that's that's angry at me and, and... the uh the selfishness in it so Mm -hmm. this is quite brilliant 
this is the way of learning how to actually deal with kids as if they were not my kid. It's just not even kid in the sense of a self, but rather this is the manifestation of a tantrum. Mm-hmm. This is a tantrum. That's what it is. It's not a, it's not a kid. Uh, um, how do you say it's not a tantrumer. It's just a tantrum. Yeah. That that is in fact exactly what's in uh, it's in the Vasudhi Maga, but we got to give him credit for a few things. <laughs> when he says there's just the walking, but mm-hmm. there's no walker. Okay, mm-hmm. so here there's just tantrum. There's no tantrumer, and hopefully there's just noble wisdom rather than a parent with my kid misbehaving. But in order for that parent to come out of it, uh, treating their children that way, guess what? Here we go back to Atamayata. He's got to relinquish. He's got to let go that this is my kid. No, it's not. (laughs) Kilbrand knew all about that. Do you know the story about Kilbrand? No. Uh, He was a mystic in India, Muslim. And he says that your children are not your children. That your children are like an arrow and you are nothing but the bow. Once you set that, once you let that arrow fly at the point of birth, don't belong to you anymore. Mm. Although if you're not careful, you can still really fuck up its flight. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. If we keep blowing on it and yelling at it, it'll turn around and see what we're doing. Exactly, exactly. So this Atamayata, as you can see, or this relinquishment, is in everywhere. It's all over the place. This is an example of it. Hmm. Maya. So Atamayata don't want nothing to do with it. It's just interesting. Sometimes that process feels like uh, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and requires a lot of you don't like a lot of requires right effort <laughs> <laughs> yep 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 and sati and that's that, the thing yeah. we have to remember that this is not the way to teach that child this is not the way to behave with that child mm. this is not even the way for me to behave with myself i love myself too you know <laughs> but it's and then at other times it is the easiest thing to do it's the nat it's the way that whether it's like training or nature it's the way that seems like the obvious right thing to do and you can just effortlessly enter into that state it is a state you know it's like when you're when you're just having fun and playing with your child you are just effortlessly in that place of like the, of playing so it mm-hmm. en- is new every minute the rules change every minute the characters change every minute the joke changes every minute exactly the case children are delightful to play with if the uh, adult in the room can become a kid again mm-hmm. but we got to meet them at their level and we know how to do that we just re- have to remember and relinquish being the big guy in the room. Mm. We have to relinquish being that parent. Mm. Yeah. Um, We had such a nice day. We had such a a glorious day (laughs) yesterday, me and the kids. It really felt like uh, there's been a few times the last few weeks where that's like that perspective of like opening up around something, around the response, which like sometimes in the past would make me kind of contract, um, close down a bit, mm-hmm. and just seeing how, seeing how more fluid and easier and happier the, the, that that kind of moment has moved through and how much more readily able you are to enter into that moment with joy. Yes. But yeah, it's a sight. That's that's the back to that balloon. The Mm. joy that we're talking about is after we do the relinquishment. Mm. 
Mm. So long as we're holding on, we're stuck. Mm. And we can only see the delight. We cannot see the danger. Once we let, once we see the danger, we can find the escape, cut the tie, let it go, and we ascend into joy. Yeah, it's interesting seeing it in the in the meditation. Those two forms of it, the kind of like the the form that requires that work, and then the form where it's just like this, like effortless, energetic, like microsecond by microsecond, like unfolding, letting go into this moment. And sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like this. I have been an engineer long enough to know all about microseconds, and that's a bit too quick for humans. We're not that fast. Well, we can get down to the tenth of a second from time to time. But by microsecond... What is a microsecond? Uh, what is it mathematically? It's exactly one thousandth of a second. One thousandth of a second, okay. Yeah, that sounds a bit... Um... No, no, sorry. Micro is one millionth of a second. Oh, okay. Millisecond is 1,000. Excuse yeah. me. The microsecond is one millionth of a second. Mm. And then the next one, the billionth, is a nanosecond, mm. which now you have nine zeros. Mm. There's no word for a hundredth second, a centisecond. We don't use that. I don't know of anybody that does. Or a tenth, a decisecond. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a decisecond. It takes, a long, it takes longer to say the word than it does for it to happen. <laughs> All right. Um, it's been really wonderful talking, Damarato. Thank you very much. Okay, I hope that we got Atamayata and relinquishment and step 16 of Anapanasati all figured out. Yeah. Thank you. And so you can let go of it being the last thing on the list. Last <laughs> 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 item. <laughs> we'll see you later, Matt. This has been well. delightful. Thank you very much, Damarati. Go well. See you later. See you later. <laughs>